Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Michael Lennington is a leading expert in the application of execution systems for individuals, teams, and entire organizations. Currently, he spends his professional time training and coaching his entrepreneurial clients, writing about leadership and business execution, and building simple tools for people seeking to accomplish more in business and in life. What has driven Michael's work since the beginning is helping others overcome the thinking and action barriers that keep them from accomplishing what they are capable of. He is a New York Times bestselling author of three books, and I should say co-author of three books, The 12-Week Year, The 12-Week Year Field Guide, and The 12-Week Year for Writers. Michael, we are so happy to have you join us on Be Brave at Work. Thank you. I appreciate the introduction. And I did a light intro of you, and I think our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about what's currently going on with you in your world and how you are currently interacting in the marketplace. Absolutely. We just published our fourth book, um, Uncommon Accountability, and that came out at the end of December. We're really excited about that book. It's it's one of the concepts that <clears throat> sort of is filtering through all the other books that we write about or all the other uh, topics that we've written about as sort of a foundational principle of of high performance and execution. So we're really excited to get the book out there. I think we have a fairly unique take on accountability and um, I think it, I think it can add some real value for folks. And would you say that the books you've written, the 12 week year, for example, and uncount, uncommon accountability come from your experiences with clients? All of them. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we, Brian and I started working together almost 20 years ago. And when we started working together, we were a traditional consulting firm, small one, but traditional in the sense that we'd go in and we'd, we'd analyze stuff and figure out ways to have breakthrough results and, uh, and then recommend uh, to the client what, what they ought to do. But what we find out, found out really quickly was most of the clients that we were working with um, already had a lot of great ideas. They had, they had ideas about how to be more effective at marketing and sales and so on. And um, what they struggled with wasn't the idea side. It was the execution side. So we decided to focus on helping our clients to, to implement um, their ideas. And as we did that work, 
you know, we worked with them uh, shoulder to shoulder on a lot of this stuff. And as we did that work with them, the stuff that, that worked well, we kept and the stuff that didn't work, we, we jettisoned and, and the stuff that remained turned into the execution system, the 12 week year. So, um, we really built that system working with our clients and, uh, and in sort of the crucible of work trial and error and, and all that. But, but at the end of the day, it, 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 it's been pretty effective. Well, something else that I imagine comes from your work with clients, and I loved reading this in your bio, is that you really focus on building simple tools for people. So many people come up with very complex processes and models, and I have a very good colleague who always uses that word in any of the work that he does that, Ed, I want to keep it simple. It has to be simple. People's lives are complex and busy, and you know, if it takes more than three steps, the likelihood of them doing it is challenging. Uh, you know, how important is simplicity in the work that you and uh, Brian do? It's critical. I, I, I couldn't agree more with, with your uh, partner there. It's, it's a, um, uh, a fundamental design requirement. And if, if, um, people look at the 12 week year, for example, and they'll look at the, um, the, the five, there's five disciplines. So it sounds like it's a complicated model, but they're, they're not they're, they're things everybody already knows, right? It's vision, it's planning, it's executing your plan and it's measuring what you're doing. And it, it's basically doing that in the context of a 12 week cycle. So, um, it's simple. I mean, anybody can, can know it and yet there's a gap between what people know and what they do. So, so we really try to close that, that knowing doing gap for folks. Well, another phrase that you use that I think is important for our listeners to hear is the importance and difference between ideas and action. I tell clients all the time, you don't need me for ideas. You can go to Google today and look up delegation or communication or you know whatever topic it is that you want to get better at, and you'll find thousands of articles or books or uh, you know uh, information about this topic. Moving it to action is where most of my clients have trouble and creating activities that fit their life and their style and the way they do things is impossible, it seems, oftentimes for people to do on their own. You know, what are some of your thoughts about this experience between ideas and action and the transition people go through to get from one to the other? Uh, that's that's a really excellent question. And and if I could answer that question for everybody, I would be so wealthy, I, you wouldn't be having me <laughs> Um, it's, you know, sort of the eternal struggle, but I think, I think one of the things that, that you, you mentioned, there's a lot of ideas out there that are available. If you, if you look at, um, if you just search, uh, diet books, um, I'm, I'm, you'll probably get hundreds of thousands, if not more, uh, different diets that you can, you can apply. Um, and so finding how to lose weight is not difficult. Most of us already intuitively know what, what it takes to lose weight. And yet most people aren't, you know, would call themselves a little overweight, at least in America. So one of the things that, um, you know, we, we do is really talk about why, why is it that we don't do what we know to do? And there's a lot of things that get in the way of that. Um, and so one of them is, is kind of the concept we have about time. Some of those things that, uh, that we, we look at in terms of the annual execution cycle, you know, there's a lot of time in the year, so I don't necessarily act with urgency. Um, the, the real big one though, is that work is often uncomfortable. Work is often, um, less easy than not working. And so, uh, we always are, are wired, at least most of us are wired to choose comfort over discomfort. And if work is discomforting, then we're not going to do it if we have a choice to do something else. And I think that's where, where it is for a lot of folks. And, and, you know, there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot of things that, that are, um, possible for us to do. And, you know, we've got to make choices. And so some stuff, it's okay that we don't, we're not great at everything. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, um, it's not a problem with that. It's the issue comes up with when I want to be great at something and then I struggle to do it. So if I, I'm really serious about losing weight, then that, then I need to kind of dig into why I'm not. 
Yeah, and I think it ties really nicely to our discussion on bravery in the workplace because being brave is an action. And I think a lot of people avoid being brave at work because it takes more time and energy and thought. And if you are a person who follows the path of least resistance, your likelihood of saying something to somebody that they need to hear or doing something that might be difficult to do is challenged by the fact that idea uh, bravery is an action. It, it is. It, it you know it. I, John Wayne had a quote, and I don't know if you like it or not, but I remember it. I don't know what exactly the context of it, but he said, "Bravery isn't the absence of fear; it's being scared to death and saddling up anyway." And um, you know, so that the, the mindset of bravery is is uh, is important. But but you know, everybody has fears, and I think you know you can either either react and, and act accordingly to your fears, or you can act according to your purpose. And sometimes they're not the same thing. So I think it's just a it's just a thing about expecting to encounter discomfort and fear. I mean, it's going to happen. You know, there's going to be some things that you're anxious about doing, but if they're the thing that has to be done, then mostly it's it's always less anxious to do it than to let it fester. Well, I'm a huge John Wayne fan, so thank you for sharing that quote. And you know, you're touching on an area that I think for many of our listeners is very relevant, which is the fear you feel when you want to say something to somebody that you think they need to hear. Maybe you don't know how to say it. Maybe you're afraid of their reaction. Uh, you know, whatever it might be, we create all these obstacles to saying it versus thinking about the good reasons and the reasons that they would benefit by us saying it. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a couple more minutes, Michael, about, you know, fear in the workplace and why we create these obstacles to doing something that could be helpful to somebody else. Yeah, that's a really good, a really good question. Another one that that's always difficult the the plum. I mean, it's not it's not something you can solve overnight. But um, I you know I'm, I recall a time in my own career when I was a new consultant and um, I was I was working with a company that built homes and the owner of the company it wasn't a huge company small company but the owner of the company was really um, he 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 was very dominating in terms of his ideas were the best ideas. And he was, he was very um, confrontational in a negative sense. It was more like conflict than confrontation. And, you know, he would abuse people and, and um, you know, complain about them. And then he'd complain to me about the fact they weren't doing their jobs. And to this day, I regret that I didn't confront him about him being the problem. I didn't. I try to I try to solve the problem from a systems perspective, from a coaching perspective, but but at the end of the day, I just needed to tell him, hey, you're the problem, you're a jerk, and if you don't stop, you're going to lose your team. That's probably what he needed to hear, and that's what he what he should have heard from me. And I I chickened out. I didn't I didn't tell him what he needed to hear. Um, so it's not always easy to do. And why, upon reflection, Michael, and I'm not attempting to play psychiatrist or sociologist, but you know, why do you feel it was hard to do? Was it a reflection of age, of authority, of not knowing how to say it? I mean, when you think back on it, what prevented you from saying something that you think would have been helpful? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I think I was feeling unsure for a couple of reasons. One is he was was a jerk, and I was afraid what he was going to say to me, right? <laughs> so it was a little little personal fear there. But I think also, um, you know, I didn't know his business as well as he did, and so I I didn't know if I wanted to take a stand and not be sure that I was making the right recommendation. Um, but I did know what I knew about how he was leading his team, and I think I think that. You know, trying to save the relationship, I actually ruined the relationship because had I been honest with him and told him, um, you know, he might have reacted very positively. He might have reacted, you know, a little bit 
taken aback. But but what I mean positively is I, he, he would have taken it on board. He was paying me for my advice and I didn't deliver the best advice. So um, I think that that what kept me from making those choices was I was just, I was intimidated. And, and I hate to say it, but but it happens. It happened to me, and and, and it's not unusual um, for people to feel that in the workplace, especially when you're dealing with with um, strong personalities. Well, it's not unusual, and I think one of the tips we can provide our listeners is something called asking for permission. So, if you have a boss that you work for, I think they appreciate your perspective and opinion. If they don't, then maybe you're working for the wrong person. But, you know, asking them, hey, from time to time, if there's something I observe or see that I think you should hear and may be difficult for you to hear, but I think it would be to your benefit, are you open to hearing it? And if they say yes, absolutely, then perhaps, I'm not suggesting it's the solution for all problems that you might experience, but perhaps that might provide you the ability to say, hey, remember we had that conversation about me saying something to you, even if it's difficult to hear, and you said absolutely, and the boss said yes, I do remember that. Are you ready? Because I've got something to tell you that I, you know, I think you need to hear. So, you know, perhaps maybe asking for permission or setting the stage for having this challenging type of conversation might be helpful. I think that's genius, actually. Um, there was a, a few years ago, a book came out called Fierce Conversations, and a, a, other books like Crucial Conversations came out. But I, I read Fierce Conversations, and they had a model for how to prepare for a difficult conversation. And it was really, really helpful because, you know, you were able to kind of think through on paper what you were afraid of and then how you're going to, how are you going to handle it if those things um, occurred and how you'd respond. But, but I love that, that permission piece because I think it's, it's always got to be part of a conversation. If you're going to talk to somebody, either a subordinate or your boss, right? it's important to ask permission. And, you know, so, hey, do you mind if I press in for a second? Because I have a couple of questions. I'm not quite clear on something. It gives you a lot of permission to ask the question in the moment. But like you said, um, you know, I'm working for you. If I see some things that I think we could be more effective at you or I, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, if you, if you don't mind, I'm going to, I'm going to let you know that I, I see this. And generally, like you said, people are going to be open to giving you permission. And when you have permission, you can take it. That's a yeah, great point. Right. And look, I think a lot of times we don't think to ask that question because we don't assume there's ever going to be a problem. You know, this is a classic model when where an employee is hired new to a company and you start on your first day and they say, go to orientation. And then after that, you're all set. Right. And yeah. off you are working and trying to do the best job you can. And nobody says, hey, there may be something this person might do that won't be effective or maybe problematic. And I'm going to talk with them about being okay, right? We just don't think about that because we hope and anticipate that everything is going to work out beautifully well. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And in the moment when you're encountering those things, one of the things that kind of pops up is the fear of creating a conflict, right? And nobody really wants conflict, but really what you're doing is, is you're confronting something. And there's people that equate confrontation with conflict, and they're not the same thing. Confronting means just to, to bring something to the surface and together confront it, right? To look at it and talk about it, explore it. That's what a confrontation is. A, a conflict is where you actually get into some kind of a, you know, a, a, a verbal argument or a verbal, um, you know, abuse, whatever. But, but, but conflict is not that. Conflict is just simply addressing the issue um, from two perspectives. You know, I'm wondering, Michael, if in your book, Uncommon Accountability, if you talk at all about bravery or at least infer or reference the need for bravery, because when I work with clients, one of the areas, and this is probably one of the top five areas they need to get better at, or they feel they need to get better at, is holding others accountable. And 
Oftentimes they don't. They let somebody's poor performance perpetuate for years. They frustrate coworkers because they don't address something that needs to be addressed with somebody. They allow poor behavior to continue. They take responsibilities away from that person and give it to others. So now the the balance is off. Everybody else has more work than you because you're not competent enough to do it. We do all of these things rather than just simply sit down with the person and say, hey, I want to give you some feedback on how I'm currently experiencing you. There's some things that you're doing that are great. And there's some things that I think you need to be doing a little bit differently to be more effective. Let's talk about that. Do you talk about that at all in your uh, your new book? All right, that's a that's a great question, and I um when when you think about accountability, most people intuitively know that they um, are better off if they're accountable. People understand that long term successful people are also internally accountable. They they value accountability, and and so people would like to be more accountable. Typically, um, no matter how accountable they are, they'd like to grow in that area. Um, but if you go to the Webster Online Dictionary, at least a year and a half ago, I don't know what it is now, but a year and a half ago when I looked it up for the book, um, there were four definitions for accountability, and they were all negative. So it was it was for something happening that was bad. And in all those cases, there was somebody with power in the situation punishing somebody with less power in the situation for falling short as if they had intentionally failed. So when you think about those definitions of accountability, you know, it's, it's something that I would naturally want to avoid. I don't want to be in situations where people with power are punishing me for something I didn't intend to do. It may not have been great, but I, I didn't intend to do it. Um, and, you know, that's just a negative dynamic. And so that's not what our accountability is at all. So when we talk about uncommon accountability, it's, it's flipping that on its face because our view, and this is, this is sort of the heretical um, theme of the book, is our view is that you cannot hold someone accountable. It's not possible because our view of accountability is not that its consequences applied by somebody with authority. Accountability is personal ownership of one's choices in life and ultimately with one's outputs. And so if I'm going to be accountable, it's a choice I'm making. I'm making a choice to take ownership of my role at work. I'm taking choice of the ownership of the actions that it takes to be successful in that role. And I've tied that role into what's important to me in life. And so I, I'm not just kind of going through the motions because I'm trying to avoid a negative consequence. I've actually taken ownership. And if you're a leader, you could probably point to the top two to five, maybe, maybe if you're lucky, 10% of your team that has taken accountability, that true accountability where you really don't have to go up and try to apply consequences, either negative or positive. They're just internally motivated. They're making good choices. They're solving problems. They're empowered and, and they're your superstars, right? And so those folks don't need anybody coming up alongside them and, and um, applying negative consequences for performance. So what we want to try to do is say, okay, what can we do to help the the other 90% of the organization um, become more like the top five to 10%. And so our view is that accountability is about my free will choice to either do the things I know I need to do or not do. And I may not like my choices, right? I, I may not like my choices. I may not like to pay my taxes, but I'd like to stay out of jail even more. So I pay my taxes, right? And simply knowing that I have choice in that matter gives me a feeling of control um, and empowerment. And where, where we want to go with accountability is to try to remove the language of leadership about holding their team accountable and instead confront them with their capabilities, hold them capable. So if I'm working with my team member, what that means is 
I want to understand from his perspective what's important to him in his life. If, if he's willing to share that with me, I want to know. I want to know why he's here, what, what, what being here helps him do in his life. I want to know what's important to him. Does he have a life vision? And then how does he see this role he's in right now connecting with that? How does he see success here helping him move in that direction? Because if I can get that connectivity as a leader, I'm going to get permission and I'm going to ask for permission to come up alongside them and help them to be even more effective at work than they are right now. And I'm going to confront them with the choices they're making. I'm not going to be namby pamby about it. I'm going to confront. So if you take that choice, here's the outcome. And if you take this choice, here's the outcome. Which one do you want to take? And ultimately, that form of accountability is a little bit scary for managers because what ends up happening is that if I've been used to, to applying consequences to manage people's performance, I do that because consequence management is an effective tool to change behavior pretty quickly. A negative consequence can cause people to stop doing stuff or to perform to a minimum standard. Positive consequences can get people to give me discretionary effort. But but if I'm playing the role of consequence manager, there's some things that happen in the culture that, that aren't so great. People will start to resent some of that stuff. Um, they'll start to feel a sense of entitlement. And I think one of the things that we want to try to do with the, with the leader side of accountability is get them used to, to confronting with choice, not with, with uh, consequences. Because there's going to be consequences if I don't do my work, right? I, I'm not pretending there are consequences. I'm, I'm going to get a bad review. I might, I might lose my job. But when I realize it's not my manager doing that to me, it's my own choices that created it. And I had different choices. Um, and I could have made choices that were going to be more successfully uh, or help it be more successful at work and accomplish more. So that mindset of, of, of accountability as consequences, which is where the holding people accountable comes in, is something we, we don't believe you can do because our view of accountability is that it's ownership and you can't force ownership. You can force compliance to a standard through consequences, but it's not the same thing as ownership because as soon as you take away those consequences, what happens to performance? It typically drops back to where the employee is comfortable. And so... You know, it's one of those things where um, consequences work um, well enough that people are using them all the time, but it, they don't work well enough that it, that it creates a culture of ownership. Well, you just open up a whole nother podcast conversation, which we will have to have you come back to talk about, which is accountability. And I love the idea of modifying our relationship with accountability. And instead of holding people accountable, look at it different ways. I will tell you through my own experience and then hosting many of these podcasts, not holding other people accountable is perceived to be an area where people want to do better. They want to hold other people accountable. It makes their life easier. It makes their relationships easier. I don't have to quote counsel you or write you up, so to speak. You know, all of those types of things can go away. So uh, I'm just wondering for while you would not hold a person accountable per se, they would still need to know exactly what is expected of them, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. In fact, there was a great book written a number of years ago called um, Practice What You Preach by David H. Maester. And in that book, he found that um, high standards and, and, and empowerment and coaching drove employee satisfaction. So you want to have high standards and high expectations. That's absolutely true. Um, and and that's, that's not what we're saying. When we talk about holding people capable, it's based upon performance. And there's no question about it. But but what the manager is doing when we hold people capable, he's stepping out of that dealer of consequences role, and you know even even just threatening with consequences or encouraging with consequences. What he's doing is he's confronting people with their choice, right? So you have a choice. You can either perform or not perform. The consequences of performing are these. The consequences of not performing are these. It's clear. 
right? So, so we're not saying consequences are part of the conversation. It's just that the employee is going to make the choice. And when the leader tries to use consequences to shape behavior, it, it's, it's a bridge too far in our view. And so um, that's what we're talking about because it, 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 you, high standards are an absolute requirement for high performance. In fact, um, it actually, high standards improve employee satisfaction, strangely enough. I am not surprised. I am a big fan of high standards, so I think they're needed in most workplaces. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. If you're open to coming back, I would love to have you come back to specifically talk about accountability and its relationship with bravery. Because again, for many of our listeners, it is the relationship between boss, subordinate, colleagues, you know, whatever the relationship might be, and accountability that drives how we operate together. And, you know, one of the key reasons I might love working with you or hate working with you is to the degree that you hold yourself accountable. Yes, absolutely. If you hold yourself accountable, everybody wants to work with you, except the people that don't want to be accountable. That is. <laughs> That's right. It's a potential endless circle. So, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. If people want to find out more about your new book or about the work that you're doing, where can they go to find that information? Uh, the best place to go if you want to learn more about um, accountability from our perspective would be to go to uncommonaccountability.com. Uncommonaccountability.com. That covers the new book and, and a lot of the content in there is, uh, is available. Um, the other uh, site to go to if you want to learn just about our execution system is the 12-week year. So it's 12weekyear.com. 12weekyear.com. Fantastic. Michael, thanks again for your time today. And thank you for the great interview. I appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today, and we hope you join us on our next podcast conversation as we further explore Being Brave at Work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at CabotRisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio everywhere online. Do you have something to say, yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do, yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.